Well, usually over the summer, the South family likes to take a few weeks off, and during this time, we try to head north to visit family. It has become a bit of a tradition on these trips to give the kids a really special treat and take them to Rainbow's End. The kids just absolutely love it. And it's one of the places I found where I fairly, really feel like I get my money's worth because the kids are on the rides nonstop from opening to close. Now, we've taken the kids to Rainbow's End three times, and there is only one negative thing I could say about our experience that has been consistent every single time. The staff are absolutely terrible. Now, when I say terrible, I do not mean that the staff are rude or mean or anything like that. Rather, what I mean by terrible is that the staff are on autopilot. The staff have no emotion, no interaction, no personality. They are simply going through the rhythms and routines of the job and nothing more. It's like the lights are on, but nobody's home. I'd be walking onto the rides and I'd look at a staff member and I'd smile and say, hey, how's it going? Are, are you having a nice day? And with a dead panned facial expression, the staff member would just glare at me in a way that would communicate, don't you dare talk to me and try to bring me out of my slumber. Honestly, I found the staff environment at Rainbow's End so depressing. And it's a shame because for us, it's a special treat that we're doing with our family as we try and create memories and have fun. Yet it's like we're fighting this wave of doom and gloom that is met from the employees. However, there was one employee who stood out and shone. Fortunately, he was stationed on what was Enzo's favourite ride. The staff member's name, I can still remember it, it was Simon. And his attitude and demeanour was in complete contrast to every other employee at Rainbow's End. Simon would smile and greet every child that went on the ride. Simon would interact with the parents. Simon would tell funny stories to the people waiting for a ride. And Simon would high-five the children as they left the ride. In an environment where you could almost say that the staff members were like walking zombies, Simon's persona just brought fresh life to the place and he made our experience at Rainbow's End so much better. I'm almost positive that we've all had these kinds of experiences. I'm sure we've all encountered people who are kind of like living zombies. These people are trudging through life going through the routine, unhappy, helpless, barely conscious, and desperately trying to find purpose and meaning. In a way, it is like these people are spiritually dead and they need to be brought back to life. And fortunately, we have a saviour called Jesus Christ who is desperately trying to save people from their zombie-like state and bring them to new life. This is a great image to keep in mind as we turn to our Bible passage for day, today. Just picture zombies being saved and brought back to life. If you have your Bibles, we're in Ephesians chapter 2, reading the first 10 verses. Ephesians chapter 2, the verse, first 10 verses. As for you, 
You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. We are currently doing a three-part sermon series called A Message to Be Shared. And this series has an evangelistic focus. Our hope is that we'll be getting excited about sharing our faith with others. We began in week one looking at our trade, which is to worship God and make disciples. Last week, we did our second message and that highlighted our routine, which is to be in good Christian community as we worship God and make disciples. And this week is our final week where we're looking at the message that we need to be sharing with our friends and family. Now, our passage today, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, is considered by many scholars to be the most evangelistic passage of Scripture in the entire New Testament. So I couldn't think of a better passage to use as we look at the message that we are to share. And the Apostle Paul, who is often known to just blurt out his thoughts in a huge mess, actually follows a bit of structure in these verses where he highlights the problem, the solution, the result, and then how this should affect our day-to-day lives. Yet, it still has some classic pull quirks. The main one being that the first seven verses in the original Greek are written in a single sentence. A single sentence. Try doing the first seven verses in a single sentence. I almost lost oxygen. Paul just couldn't help himself and he blurts out the entire message of salvation in just one big, long breath. Now you'll be pleased that we're not going to follow Paul in this regard. And therefore we're gonna stagger our approach a bit and break down the passage, which leads us to our very first point this morning. We were like zombies. In the first three verses, Paul highlights the problem. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. These verses can be summed up by simply saying, we were all spiritually dead. We were all like walking zombies. 
when it says in verse two that we followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, this is just a reference to our enemy, Satan, and reminding us that he is trying to deface God's beautiful creation, which includes humanity. The reason that it says kingdom of the air is because in the ancient world, they understood the air between the earth and the heavens as the spiritual domain. This is the space where we reside and where the enemy prowls. According to, essentially, according to verse three, the enemy's one task is to get us enslaved following our own needs, desires, and wants. I believe we often overcomplicate this world, this word called sin, and we start coming up with a long list of do's and don'ts. But as Paul is going to say, say in verses eight through ten, do's and don'ts cannot save us. Following religious rules is not the answer. Sin is simply when we're living outside of God, who is the source of life. As biblical scholar Klein, get this, Snodgrass. Snodgrass says, great name, right? Sin is the act of choosing our own way and leaving God out of the picture. The issue of sin is not just a problem for the world to face, it is also a problem for the church as well. Even followers of Christ can get caught up focusing on our own wants, our own needs, our own desires, and we can leave God out of the picture. We all have the danger to become like zombies, to be spiritually dead. And if we find ourselves separated from the God who is life, then that presents a big problem. And our future fate does not look that promising because the alternative to life is death and destruction. This actually leads to one of the big problems that we face today. How do we get people to understand that they are spiritually dead? You see, for a lot of people in the world, they consider themselves to be good people, and so they don't think that they need saving. Even in the church, we can start thinking things like, well, God created me this way for a reason, so I don't need to change them. I'm pretty good. I mean, the enemy is the great deceiver after all. So how do we reveal to all these good people that they're actually spiritually dead and need saving? What is a modern day parable that might help people understand these three verses in Ephesians? Well, the zombie illustration is a good one, but another one that I find helpful to use is the parable of a motor vehicle. Well, let's just take a moment to imagine that I'm a Formula One driver and I'm flying around the track in my red Ferrari. There I am. 16, actually Charles Leclerc, but let's pretend it's me. I'm a good driver. I'm racing well. All of a sudden, on my steering wheel, I notice the engine light flashing. The car is still driving well. I have full power, but the warning light is definitely shining brightly. Now, this, at this point, I face a choice. I can go into the pits and get the car checked, or I can continue to keep racing. Now, any petrol head knows that to ignore the engine warning light is not a good choice. And if you were to ignore the warning light, then it can have catastrophic consequences later down the track. As we race around the track of life, we might think we're doing pretty well. 
But God who created everything, who's the master mechanic, has given us, given us a warning light. And we now face a choice. We can choose to go into the pits and investigate further what God is doing and saying. Or we can choose to ignore the light and keep racing. Do you really want to risk blowing up and destroying your engine? Now trust me, you want to go into the pits. And as you drive into the pits, this is what the Apostle Paul would say to you, reading from verses 4 through 5. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. That leads to our next point. Jesus saves us. The first thing I want to point out is the attitude behind the God who saves us. I remember when I went to high when I was at high school and I went on a class trip that went to central Auckland. I grew up in Auckland, so it wasn't a long trip for us. Um, and my friends and I were walking up Queen Street, uh, which is in the middle of the CBD. And as we were walking up Queen Street, we, we came across the street preacher. And this man was standing there and he was shouting at everyone who passed, You are destined for hell. You are a sinner. If you don't confess your sins, then God's wrath is going to come on you and punish you and, and you will burn in hell forever. And at this point, my friends all looked at me and I could see from their expressions what they were thinking. Jeremy, is this really the same God that you follow? Unfortunately, many street preachers have given God an unfair representation because people are left thinking that God is an angry, judging, punishing deity and therefore why would they want anything to do with him? Did you notice the words that the Apostle Paul used in verses four to five to describe God? Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Paul uses words like love, mercy, and grace to describe God's saving acts. Quite a contrasting picture to the street preacher I encountered many years ago. We need to remember that it is because God loves us that He saves us. Now, these verses in Ephesians are unique in that Paul doesn't mention the cross. Paul only mentions the resurrection. However, we know from the Apostle Paul that the cross was, was never far from his mind. Paul believed with all of his heart that God loves us. And so God came down to dwell among us as the person of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. As Jesus dwelled among us, Jesus showed, showed us what it, was like, what it is like to be truly human, which is demonstrated through love, service, and sacrifice. Jesus then did something mind-boggling. Jesus, although completely innocent, willingly died on the cross so that the curse of sin could be put to death forever. Therefore, anyone who declares the name of Jesus Christ will be saved. Then Jesus was raised back to life so that all who follow him can be joined in this new life as we begin to live how we were created to live as God's image bearers here on earth, showing the world around us what God is like by living lives of love, service and sacrifice. We have been saved 
But more importantly, it is because God loves us that we have been saved. We need to be careful that as we share the message of Jesus, we don't miss the important point that this all comes from God's love. As Baptist pastor and author Tony Campolo shares from his pre-Christian days, he says, I remember attending a revival meeting when the tent meeting was in its heyday. The stern evangelist vividly described the fiery torments of hell that awaited the unrepented sinner. Closing his message, the speaker pointed a bony finger to his audience and pronounced, if you leave this place without knowing Jesus and cross the street outside and get hit by a car, you will go straight to hell. The message did not make me want to know Jesus, but it did make me look both ways when I crossed the street. Let's make sure that people know they're saved because of the right reasons. It's not because God hates them. It's because God loves them. Next point, God raises us up. Verses six through seven read, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, for those of you that were here at my sermon two weeks ago, you probably heard those words there. I think they'll highlight up, won't they? And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And you're probably now thinking, okay, Jeremy, you have a bit of explaining to do. Didn't you tell us two weeks ago that, the new, that in the New Testament, heaven is not often talked about as a place but rather is God's presence coming down to earth. And that it's not about going to heaven, but about the new heavens and new earth. It's about the new creation that will one day come into being. So Jeremy, according to Ephesians, what's, what's going on here? Well, if that's what you were thinking, you're right. I do have some explaining to do. Now, the first thing we need to note is that this verse saying that we are raised up with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly realms. Well, this verse is written in the present tense. It's saying that we're experiencing this right now. Today, right now, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Now, I hope I don't have to spend too much time trying to convince you that we're currently not in heaven. We are, in fact, our destination is planet Earth. So why is it written in the present tense? Hold that thought. The second thing we need to know is that if we want to be good biblical scholars, then we need to remember a very important reality. First thing you learn at Bible college, the Bible is not written in English. The Bible's not written in English. Sometimes there are Greek words where there's just not a good English equivalent. And so we put in the best English word that we can find. And unfortunately, sometimes these English words can be loaded and have meanings that might not have been meant by the original Greek word. Heaven is one of these loaded words where it's adopted a specific meaning and image in English that was not necessarily meant in the original Greek. For instance, heaven in the original language can have multiple meanings. Heaven can mean vast expanse of sky above the earth. Heaven can mean the place where God resides, absolutely. And heaven can mean God's reign coming to birth on earth. So to be a good biblical scholar, we always have to go back to the original words and the original meanings. 
And a great way to do this can be to find out how these words are used in other parts of the Bible. And fortunately, this phrase, heavenly realms, is used a bit, especially in the book of Ephesians. It's used a couple of other times. Let's just pull up those times. This is one of them. His intent was now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Now that's talking about like, you know, rulers and authorities. That's like prime ministers and stuff, but they're in the heavenly realms. Then next one, Ephesians 6. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Hold on. How can evil be in the heavenly realms? It becomes clear in the book of Ephesians that heavenly realms is actually being used to describe the spiritual atmosphere that we currently reside in. Paul is actually painting this really cool contrasting picture. In verse 2, remember we looked at verse 2 earlier, Paul mentioned how Satan resides in the air in the atmosphere of this world and how Satan is trying to corrupt us. Yet, yet because of Christ's resurrection, we are no longer subject to the spiritual powers of the air, but we are now subject to the resurrected power of Christ in the heavenly realms. We're not living in the air, i.e. the kingdom of darkness, rather we're living in the heavenly realms, i.e. the kingdom of God. The point remains the same as two weeks ago. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Paul is saying if we are in Christ, then we are dead to our old ways of life and we become a new creation. We are alive in Christ. As biblical scholar Klein Snodgrass says, the heavenly realms are not separated from this world. On the contrary, they are determinative for this world. Conversion is a transfer from one sphere to the other, a change of lordships, and being raised with Christ is the language Paul uses to describe this transfer from the realm of death to the realm of life. The point is that we are joined and united with Jesus Christ, and this means that we are raised up to live for the kingdom of heaven in all that we do, which leads nicely to our final point. We live for Jesus The final three verses hammer home the message that we're to share and the message that we are to live. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul is essentially screaming at us, salvation is a free gift and it should transform you to be like Jesus. If we are united with Jesus in the heavenly realms, then our lives should reflect this new way of life to the world around us. I wonder, are we being in the image of God? Are we living lives of love, service and sacrifice? I want to be crystal clear here. Verses eight through 10 are extremely important because we don't live this new life to try to earn salvation. Salvation cannot be earned. 
as Paul says in verse eight, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. However, receiving this free gift should lead to a new life as we set about loving God and loving others. As preacher and theologian John Stott says, good works are indispensable to salvation, not as its grounds or means, but as its consequence and evidence. If we have been saved through the death of Christ and brought back to life through his resurrection, then how can this not change us? We are raised up with Christ to reflect God to the world. I wonder if we were to do a bit of a critique, then how well do you think we're doing it being the hands and feet of Christ? Are we putting verse 10 into practice and doing the good works that God has prepared for us to do? I wanna talk about something this morning and I wanna start, my, my, my first pastor did this, whenever he had a tough message, he would start with, I love you all so much. So I'll start like that this morning. I love you all so much. But because I love you, I need to be very real with you. After all, that is what, that's what it means to have accountability, which we talked about a few weeks ago. You need to have the hard conversations. Last week, I mentioned how we need some drivers to help some of our members in need get to church on a Sunday morning. Do you know that we didn't get a single response? No one volunteered to help get people to church on a Sunday morning. You know, people will often say to me, Jim, we, we need to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our community and get His amazing message of salvation to the world around us. Now, I believe this is true, but sometimes I have this thought. How can we be the hands and feet of Christ in the world if we can't do it for our own church whanau first? I mean, this is what Jesus was getting at at John 13, 34 to 35, where he says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If we are being the image of God, if we are demonstrating love, service and sacrifice to one another, then surely we can get those in need to church on a Sunday morning. I mean, that is just one example. The point being, we need to put it into practice with our own church whānau first before we then go, go out into the world. Remember, we are alive in Christ and our life in Christ should be different to our old lives when we were zombies. If we truly understand what we're saved from, then it should change the course of our life forever. We no longer live in Satan's realm of air. We now reside in Jesus's heavenly realm. I wonder, what good works has God prepared for you to do? I want you to think back to my opening illustration at Rainbow's End. I mentioned a young man named Simon who stood out compared to his co-workers. Surrounded by a bunch of zombies going through the motions, Simon, he was alive. Now, I don't actually know if Simon was a follower of Jesus or not. The point being, his life was being lived in a way that was different to those around him. This is what should happen when we become united in Christ. Our lives are transformed. We're still living in the world. We'll still have jobs. We'll go to the supermarket. 
We'll probably face family confrontations. We might get caught up in a road rage incident. We'll go to the beach with our families. We'll go to weddings. We will still do life. However, in all those things, our lives should be different because we should be reflecting Jesus Christ. Love, service, and sacrifice should be the foundation of everything we do. A few weeks ago on Sunday, I just finished up church. I had run some meetings and I had a couple of hours free before I had to return back to church in the evening for elders. I was shattered. I walked down to the shops to get a few things for Bex that she'd requested. And as I walked back to my car, I noticed a lady standing just outside of our church with an extremely puzzled and upset look on her face. It looked like she was reading our church sign just out there trying to take in the information, but she looked really sad. And my initial thought was, oh, I've only got a a short amount of time before I have to be back here for elders meetings. I, I really don't need an interruption right now. She hasn't seen me. I think I can get in my car without her noticing. I mean, even pastors can fall back towards their old zombie-like ways of life. I went to get into my car and the Holy Spirit confronted me. Jim, would Jesus really just walk past someone in need? I stopped getting into my car. I walked up to the lady and I said, are you okay? Can I help you with anything? She looked at me. She looked back at the sign and she said, look at the size of the spider that's on that sign. Do you think I can take a photo of that? I smiled at her and I said, sure thing, knock yourself out, God bless. And I walked back to my car to have my short but much needed break. But as I drove back home, I was filled with joy knowing that the Holy Spirit had prompted me. I had been obedient and that God is transforming me into a new creation. May the Holy Spirit do the same for you so that you can be the hands and feet of Christ and complete the good works that God has prepared for you. Let's pray. Music team, do you want to join me? Well, loving Father, we thank you for your word in Ephesians. We thank you for this series where we've been doing, where we're looking at your wonderful message to be shared. And I pray that your spirit will now lead and guide us to be able to be your hands and feet and share this message with those around us. We pray that it will, like we talked about last week in community, that it will start here as we live in community with one another, as we come together and pray and worship you and break bread together, do life together. I pray that we will create a community that as Jesus referred to, that the world will look at and know that we're followers of Christ because of how we interact with each other. What a beautiful picture. But from that, may we be able to then go out into our workplaces, into our family that don't believe, with friends that don't believe, sports clubs, wherever we interact. And may our lives be different, Lord. May those traits that were so clear in you, love, service, sacrifice, be what we adopt. The ways that are opposite to the world. The world's all about success, power, conquer. It's what the Jewish people expected in the Messiah, that victorious 
warrior coming in on his white horse into Jerusalem to to rage war and free them from the Romans. And yet you came in as a humble servant riding on a donkey, doing the ultimate sacrifice that the world has ever seen. That should be our model and guide. We are going to places with humility. We are going into places with service. We're going into place with with the spirit of sacrifice, laying down our lives for you and your kingdom. So I pray ultimately for humility, Lord, that it won't be about our will, our desires, our wants. We will make this about you, Lord, and what you're, the amazing work of salvation you're doing. So Lord, I just pray for guidance as we begin to live this out. Just pray that we'll continue to seek your word and what you're saying to us in your word. Pray that we'll just be able to have your eyes as we see those around us. Lord, give us strength because we can't do this alone. We need your help. And as Paul also says, not only do you help us, but we have the same power that brought Jesus back to life residing in us. So Lord... Help us step forward knowing that we don't go alone. You are with us every step of the way. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.